I said to the team before, I was like, listen, I'm not going to do all this media stuff. I'm not going to be the media spokesperson. Get someone else who's really good, who can talk to all these channels and all that. I'm too scared because I really have never really liked public speaking or speaking on the telly or radio. And they're like, no, that's fine, Ramona. That's fine. We'll get someone else. Right. And the next thing I know, I'm on Radio 4, primetime, 8am, you know, talking about Inspired by Muhammad campaign. And I was like, my throat was parched. It was just like, oh my God, I need to do this. And I just got through it. And then I was like on the BBC. I was on Voice of America, Al Jazeera, Canadian radio. It was just really crazy. We were getting interview requests from everywhere and it just showed that, you know, they, they actually were hungry for positive stories about Muslims and Islam. So we kind of generated positive media space. Writing is the painting of the voice. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the One Foot in the Sink podcast. My name is Anis and I have lost my voice. Luckily, my co-host still has his voice. Foz, say hello. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. And she is a journalist. It's Ramona Ali. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Hello, my friends. Muslims. Muslims. Muslim lifestyle podcast. What do you think the podcast is about? I think it's about Muslim because you put your foot in the sink when you do a do. It's about a story called the Ghostbusters. So if writing is the painting of the voice and I have no voice, so what does that make me? A blank canvas. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. I like it. I was going down that angle anyway, because we've discussed before and Anise doesn't have any artistic talents, so it's, <laughs> it's quite apt. <laughs> so yeah, on the previous episode, Fos said I had no intelligence and now I'm, bl- I'm a blank canvas, so I'm just nothing. <laughs> no, you said you have no intelligence, didn't you? We need to listen back. <laughs> All right, so should we just jump into our opening question? Let's do it. Sure. So this episode's opening question is, if you had a chance to interview any fictional character, who would it be and why? So as usual, I'll start with you, Foz. I thought about this and I was thinking the Joker from Batman, because he's just an interesting character. It's always about, like, it would be good to find out more about his background, who is Joker, I'd try making him cry a bit, get emotional in an interview. That would be amazing, seeing a different side of him. But yeah, it would be quite a funny interview. I could range from having fun, getting some humour in there, then finding out about why he hates Batman so much. So yeah, it would be a wide-ranging in- interview, I reckon. Hmm. I think he might convince you to do some crimes against citizens of Gotham City because you're easily influenced. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll do it over Skype in it, so you know, you'll be fine. You control yourself. All right. What about you, Ramona? Who are you going with? Well, I because I studied English literature at university, I really love one of my favorite novels is Gulliver's Travels. Have you heard of Gulliver's Travels? So it's by yeah. um, an Irish writer called Jonathan Swift. So I'd love to uh, interview Gulliver because uh, it's like the whole oh, nice. novel is about where satire meets science fiction. It's just such a clever commentary on like the hypocrisy and the foolishness in society so like Gulliver travels all over the place like to parallel universes and he goes to Lilliput as as a I mean that's people know about Lilliput and he goes to a land where like people are giant sized and goes to a land where like horses rule and humans have devolved so I think he'd have loads to say and just love to speak to him about all of that and the parallels with 
society today as well around us. Oh man, that's like way better <laughs> than my answers. Like my, my answer looks so bad now. Thanks, Ramona. It usually are. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, can we can we re-record this bit and I can come up with something more intelligent? <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought I'd sound cleverer <laughs> to start off on the right foot. <laughs> Now it's all going to go downhill. <laughs> yeah, you said I <laughs> Good luck, Anise. You know, I while I, while I was reading out the question, I just realised that I just thought of an answer. <laughs> this is standard. It happens every episode. It does. But um, I'm just going to go with. I've just recently started watching Peaky Blinders on oh, Netflix. I love that. Oh, I need to watch it. It's really it's really interesting. So I'm going to interview Thomas Shelby, the main character in Peaky Blinders. I'll ask him about like his. You know, his thought process in terms of all the racketeering, everything that he does. And I can also ask him about some fashion chips because he looks proper in, in the, his suits on point. So, yeah, that would be my interview. That is nice because Peaky Blinders is, is brilliant and his character is really complex as well. So he's got a whole backstory that you'd love to hear about. Okay, I'm going to add that to the list to watch now. Okay, so before we get on with the show, let's introduce our guest. Ramona, thank you so much for coming on. You are welcome. Very happy to be here. So I'm just going to quickly read your profile. You are a very well-known journalist and a commentator who is passionate about faith, lifestyle and the Muslim identity. You write for a few media outlets such as The Guardian in the UK and you appear on the BBC radio and on TV to discuss various topics. In 2009, you became Director of Communications for the Exploring Islam Foundation, which is a foundation that specialises in PR campaigns and resources on Islam and Muslims across media platforms. Today, we want to get to know what it's like to be a journalist, especially one that writes about Muslims. We'd love to hear your thoughts on being a Muslim in the media and the work you are doing with the Exploring Islam Foundation. You all set? Ready to go? Me? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the well-known bit, but yeah, <laughs> I'm a journalist. I don't know how well-known I am. Well, we know about you, so... Yeah, you two know about me as two people. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go into the, you know, the work you're doing in the media and everything, so tell us a bit about yourself first. Oh my gosh, what do you want to know? Um, so I was uh, yeah, born in the UK, in Kent. I will speed through my childhood, shall I? Is this yeah, like a therapy yeah, yeah, session? Um, so I, uh, I, I live in a very white area and I was kind of always aware that I was different to everyone else. That was kind of, I had its own set of challenges, but it also helped me grow a lot as a person and I was really reflecting on who I was, about my faith, you know, about you know, living kind of almost like this kind of, insider outsider experience mm. through my, throughout my life I eventually studied English literature and classical studies at university which was really like outlandish for an Asian woman to do because people were kind of like what why aren't you doing medicine or pharmacy or law <laughs> uh, but I just followed my passions I really have always been interested in literature and civilization so did studying Greek and Roman civilizations uh, looked at Homer looked at tragedy looked at you know, architecture, it was it was a bit of everything. So I had a um, you know, I had a wonderful kind of grounding in that and also in English literature. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I wrote my first article at university for the student magazine and then I kind of thought, Oh, I think I really want to go into this and I eventually did a bit later on after uni. You forgot to mention the giant sunflower when you were growing up. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, recently in The Guardian, I made the front page of G2 for 
my sunflower that I grew when I was six years old. And I won a prize, a trophy for the tallest sunflower um, wow. in my area. I still remember that because it's basically the only thing I've ever won. Uh, it was was so exciting at the time and actually I even think of it now with like fondness and excitement and uh, you know I couldn't believe that it made the uh, the front page of G2 and the Guardian just literally just recently do you know what you should do yeah you should grow another one I think it would die (laughs) I don't know I feel like I have like some kind of like curse now with growing anything I'm just about getting my my basil plant to survive these really hot days at the moment so yeah yeah I don't know if I'm that was like a miracle that was a one-off that was a one-hit wonder back in the day how did that happen how did you get it to grow so big I'm curious watered it all the time like twice a day I watched it I prayed I think it was just his <laughs> care and love and affection I probably talked to it as well we were like please grow my sunflower seed um and then it grew like it was huge it's absolutely huge this picture of me and the sunflower is I don't know if you ever remember the day of the triffids I was like this program yeah. about these like giant sized kind of killer plants but anyway it, it kind of reminded me of that it was just so huge except obviously it was a beautiful sunflower that gave me a lot of joy so yeah it was it was great Having to see, you know, seeing that printed in the Guardian, where I Very got cool. my first kind of like mainstream media article printed. So yeah, awesome. So let's find out about how you became a journalist. So where did it all start for you? How did you get into journalism? Well, it took me a bit of time actually. So after university, I kind of worked for a racial quality council first. That was my first job. And then I worked at SOAS University in London for uh, the Centre of Islamic Studies with Professor Abdul Halim, who has translated the Quran, one of these translations that is very accessible and readable. And so I, I worked for him for a few years. And at the same time, I started freelancing for ML magazine, a British Muslim lifestyle magazine. And then I left SOAS and I joined ML full time. I became the deputy editor there. And Amel was wonderful. It was this glossy, dynamic, vibrant magazine that celebrated British Muslim life. It covered things like sports, food, fashion, current affairs. And we had high profile interviews with people like Raggy Omar, um, Yusuf Islam, with the Danish hip hop band Outlandish. So I I got Mm. to interview all these people. And I absolutely loved it. And I also got to know the British Muslim communities really well. It was just, it was a buzz, like working for a magazine, but also it was a huge challenge to work in print media because like deadlines constantly, working on a shoestring budget, you know, it was, it was I was, we were all flat out all the time, but I, ab- I absolutely loved working at ML because it really challenged me in so many ways. And it also, you know, gave me the opportunity to really get to terms with, you know, what the Muslim communities were all about in Britain. Mm. And they're just so diverse and so rich and so in interesting so yeah it just made me really proud of uh of what british muslims have been contributing to society that's really interesting and how did you like how did that transition happen so you wrote an article at university you mentioned earlier mm. and then like, how did you end up writing for the magazine what happened there so i went to a a living islam kind of like a family weekend it's called Living Islam. It's run by the Islamic Society of Britain. And this is back in 2003. And I saw one of the stalls, I saw um, the ML magazine on there. It was their first issue. And I was like, wow, what is this? And that's where I met the editor-in-chief, Sarah Joseph. And I just said, I would love to write for you. And she was like, yeah, 
go for it, please do. And then wow. I started writing. Ever since then, I actually wrote the, the for the, the second issue, I wrote the cover story. And I didn't even realize it was going to be on the cover. And it was all about interviewing families who were experiencing Ramadan and how people come together. And I you know, went, actually traveled around the UK to kind of like talk to different families about how they, how they spent Ramadan. I was so excited to see my name in ML magazine for the first time. It was just such a buzz. And then from then, I just wrote for them a lot more regularly. And then they offered me the job of deputy editor. Nice. And then obviously, and then I actually was there for three and a half years as in, in that role. Um, and then I left nine years ago, and then my life took a very different course since then. I, I have a few questions for you, Ramona. Just, just you know, going back to your story in the beginning, when you said you wrote your first article in university, what was the article about? Oh, that article was actually about uh, the Runnymede report on Islamophobia, mm-hmm. um, because it had just come out, I think, the, the year before. Um, I did an article about, you know, this kind of growing prejudice towards Muslims and how they've been portrayed in the media. Because, you know, there has been these attitudes towards Muslims that are negative before 9-11. And so mm-hmm. it's something that had been growing before then. And I just feel like 9-11 was like the catalyst of uh, of that whole uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, so I wrote about that. And I kind of, I'm not that happy to say that it was about Islamophobia, because I feel that a lot of my work hasn't really been around the negatives. It's more around like, positive stories and about contributions and about kind of like also light-hearted stuff as well I've done I've kind of, I've done kind of humorous pieces as well so it even though it gave me it gave me a, a taste of journalism back in the day it didn't really reflect the rest of my journalistic career that's really interesting like it seems like from from, from the first article you've been attracted to writing about something to do with your faith yes yeah yeah I mean my faith is everything to me it, it encompasses so much. It's so beautiful and dynamic and it's so rich. And I love exploring it through the cultural traditions, through everything, through music, through art, through history and the theology. I mean, it's just so rich. So there's a lot to explore Mm -hmm. there. And, And also, obviously, the British Muslim identity has been a strong, strong part of that because it's something that, you know, all British Muslims have really gone through. They've been questioned about their identity. They've had to introspect. They've had to, they've been questioned about their loyalty. So, you know, we actually have been looking at ourselves a lot more, you know, and questioning things and growing. And there's just a lot of exciting kind of projects and enterprises, you know, everywhere that have been popping up over the years. And I've just seen the Muslim communities really grow in the past 15 years. It's just been really exciting to see that. Yeah, it has actually been very exciting yeah, to see that. One more question. The Living Islam Weekend. What, what is that? I've never heard of that. Oh, so it's it's just like a family fun weekend. They have different talks on, they have entertainment. They have like this kind of mini market. It's just bringing Muslims together to, to celebrate and to learn and to explore together. So that year when I saw the Amal magazine being launched in, in, I think it was in 2003, Sami Yusuf was also being launched. Remember the Nasheed uh, artist, British oh, right. yeah, yeah. Muslim Nasheed artist, and he, oh my gosh, there was like a massive, like uh, wonderful reception of him that year as well because he was he did his first kind of public appearance then, and he launched his uh, first album Al Muallim. So it was everything was kind of coming together that year, 
yeah, and it, and I actually featured him recently in a in a radio thing that I did as well. So all these things that I've kind of grown with, I, I kind of go back to as well with uh, all the work that I do. Even in my uh, academic studies as well, that also is fed into what I do now. I think it really, really helped me in my writing and also in like all my learning as well. It's really all complemented what I do now. Sammy Yusuf is on our list of people to get on the show, so maybe we'll <laughs> yeah, <hopefully laughs> ask you, you for will. a favour. <laughs> So you had your time at uh, ML, uh, and then how did it transition to, how did you end up working with The Guardian and writing news articles for The Guardian, which is a huge UK mm. news outlet? And uh, was there a particular article that put you on the map, or how did that happen? So um, I actually left ML magazine because I was going through a bereavement as well. So um, my, I, I lost my father towards the end of my time at ML, so I just decided to leave everything I left. ML, I left London because I was living in London as well at that time, even though I'm from Kent. And I moved back to Kent with my mum. And I didn't have any plan at all. It was just, you know, I had no idea what was going to happen next. All I knew was I had to be home with my mum. And just things, I just, things happened. So just uh, windows of opportunities opened up very soon afterwards. I got like a phone call a couple of days later from someone at Exploring Islam Foundation. And they just said, are you are you free? We've heard you left a mail. We want you to come and work wow. with us. And I was like, oh, I don't <laughs> want to work for a while. Just leave me alone. But um, then I worked with Exploring Islam Foundation and we kind of launched these big PR campaigns. They wanted me to front them. So one of one of those first campaigns was the Inspired by Muhammad campaign in 2010. Yeah. And it was a high-profile PR campaign and we featured it on transport for London in different locations on the underground at, and at bus stops and also on a fleet of taxis and I think I remember seeing that on the underground oh yeah yeah so this is yeah back in 2010 and it was over well it was really like a huge project that I worked on but we did not anticipate the response that we would have to it so it went not just national, it went global. Wow. Um, it was only something that was up for two weeks on London transport. And and we were getting, you know, uh, interview requests from America and Canada and, you know, from Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, it was just everywhere. And it wow. just showed that, you know, they, they actually were hungry for positive stories about Muslims and Islam. So we kind of generated positive media space. And it was just, it was very exciting to be part of, but it was also really a bit scary for me because I I said to the team before, I was like, listen, I'm doing all this. I project managed it, but I said, look, I, I'm not going to do all this media <laughs> stuff. I'm not going to be the media spokesperson. Get someone else who's really good, who can talk to all these channels and all that. I'm too scared because I've really I've never really liked public speaking or speaking on the telly yeah. or radio. And they're like, no, that's fine, Ramona. That's fine. We'll get someone else. Right. And the next thing I know, I'm on Radio 4, prime time, <laughs> 8 a.m., you know, talking about Inspired by Muhammad campaign. And I was like, my throat was parched. It was just like, oh, my God, I need to do this. And I just got through it. And then I was like on the BBC where I was on Voice of America, Al Jazeera, Canadian Radio. It was just wow. really crazy. And we were just all over the place. So I was catapulted into it and I just had to go with the flow. But it was it was exciting. It was a really exciting time. And it was an opportunity to talk about Muslims in a really positive way. And, you know, and it was it was a you know, a time that actually Muslims said to me that they were so proud of that campaign 
and they were really supportive. You know, we had so many thousands of emails coming in and it was just incredible. Never anticipated it. So, you know, alhamdulillah, you know, praise God, it was just an amazing, amazing time for me back then. So I had a few questions about that, actually. So first one was that, what was the inspiration behind the Inspired by Muhammad campaign? How did you get to that idea? I love the campaigns. And when I go on this site and you see the, some of the billboards, it's such a great thing. Like, what mm. was your inspiration behind that? And well, obviously, <laughs> there's, there's obviously the overriding inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the prophetic model. Yes. So we had to really you know, think about, you know, about the PR around it. We, we had some other ideas, actually, uh, for our first campaign. And some of them just weren't quite working. So we actually, one of them, we were going to go with something else entirely, but I kind of put a stop in it. I was like, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> so then we thought about, okay, we need something positive. We need something colorful. We need something celebratory. And we also need something universal. So that's why we thought, okay, let's, you know, who is the best model for all of this, for coexistence, for universality, for positive messaging? It's, it's our prophet, peace be upon him. So, um, and we want, but we wanted to talk about, how British Muslims are inspired mm. by him every day. And so we, we in the posters, we had three individuals connected with three areas. So one was women's rights, one was social justice, and one was the environment. So in each of those three areas, we had uh, a Muslim who said, for example, I believe in social justice, so did Muhammad. And it was a man who worked in a homeless shelter. Um, and those, were, those posters were everywhere. And we just wanted to say that, you know, these values are all universal. We're all basically, you know, want, want the same things in life. We all want to help others. We all care about the environment. We care about social justice. And, you know, we're fighting for you know, rights of women. The, the response was just incredible. But also there was criticism, of course, yeah. because when you're that high profile, you're going to get the Islamophobes coming out of the cupboards and kind of going, uh, what are they talking about? How can they even say this? Oh, you know, how can they say that Prophet Muhammad was an environmentalist? What are they talking about? Yeah. So there were loads of like articles and blogs that were like really vicious about the campaign, about me personally. So you know, you had to you had to kind of like uh, deal with all of that as well as the uh, the positive response. However, like you know, the positive was hugely outweighed the negative, um, yeah. and you have to expect the negative anyway. So. We were just being realistic, uh, and uh, we actually posted some of those negative blogs on the website as well, just to show how far we reached, <laughs> you know, and how many uh, feathers <laughs> we ruffled as well, yeah. which was great, you know. So um, it worked for us. It was brilliant. So we, yeah, we really, I was really happy with, with that campaign. Though I don't think something like that would really work so well today. I think it worked back in 2010. So a PR is really important. You have to really work with the, the times, the mood of the people. So I don't think a repeat of that would work so much now in Britain. What makes you say that? I'm curious. I think that the mood has changed a lot in the past uh, eight years, for sure. There's a lot more cynicism now in Britain. You know, having these very colourful, positive campaigns, I, you know, I don't know if it would like, hold as much sway today as it did back then. Yeah, I think you just need to be smarter. We have to be a bit smarter with, with things now. So that's why there was another campaign that we worked on actually called Missing Pages, which highlighted the stories of solidarity between Muslims and Jews. And that was a very different feel and a very different vibe. It was a lot more serious um, because it was voicing unity with Holocaust Memorial Day. So we wanted to highlight how 
the historic relationship between Muslims and Jews, you know, has been one of coexistence largely. And we wanted to show that the prophetic model of that coexistence is something that, that Muslims should be inspired by and we are inspired by. And we just wanted to highlight all those stories that we don't really know about. You know, we don't know about Albanian Muslims who rescued Jews from the Nazis so much. We don't really know about you know, the rector of Paris Mosque who kind of hid Jews in the underground caverns of, yeah. of the mosque in Paris. We don't know about, you know, so many wonderful stories. I mean, they're little known. They're not known enough uh, in a lot of the Muslim communities, but there's been more PR around these stories. And, you know, and, and our campaign was one of them that, that highlighted that, that beautiful coexistence that we need to kind of not always overshadow everything with geopolitical tensions. Yeah, agreed. And it's amazing the work that you're doing. So well done to you. One thing I was curious about as well, was there a particular piece of feedback or a particular email that really struck you that's memorable for you? There was an email actually about the Inspired by Muhammad campaign, and it was from a non-Muslim guy, and he just said, I'm not Muslim, but I am really inspired by your campaign. I moved. And, you know, it moved him to email and just say how, you know, impressed he was with it. And, and I just thought that that's amazing. You don't realize how many people that you are reaching or touching. And it's, you know, a lot of people won't email you. So when yeah. you get one email that, that says that, you kind of think, okay, maybe there are loads of people that are thinking this. And it kind of makes you carry on. And, you know, all that hard work, you know, yeah. it really is worth it when you read an email like that. So, yeah, I was I was really happy to, to read that. And, you know, we did have uh, many other positive responses, but that was something that really kind of uh, struck me at the time. Yeah, that's a very powerful thing to hear. So um, from there, how did The Guardian happen? Well, actually, it happened at the same time, in a way. So uh, after I left Amel, so I joined Exploring Islam Foundation, but um, I also, through joining them, the foundation, uh, they recommended that I go on this media training course, and it was sponsored by the UN. So I went to this media training wow. course, and uh, I met the head of diversity at The Guardian at that time, Yasser Mirza. And uh, he said to everyone, look, you know, if you've got an idea for a story, please pitch it to me and I will, you know, run it by the editors at The Guardian. And I was like, I've got an idea. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> And I, I pitched it to him. And then he and it was all about my first piece was about loving rock music, about Muslim women in hijab who love rock music and heavy metal. And it was just going to be something very lighthearted, uh, a bit tongue in cheek, but also some kind of comment about women, you know, kind of being a bit rebellious and finding an affinity with rock music because it's always about the angst and kind of against the, the establishment. And yeah, no, I talked about going to my first Muse concert. Um, at that time, they were like the the best live band in the world. So I wrote about that and I interviewed some other women who also like love like Red Hot Chili Peppers and Bon Jovi and Led Zeppelin and Japanese rock and stuff like that. So I, I wrote that piece and it got published in, in 2010 as well, actually a few months before the Inspired by Mama campaign launched. So that happened and it was so exciting. Like, I could not believe that my name was in The Guardian. Yeah, that's amazing. It was amazing. And it had so many people were like talking about it and, and you know, tweeting it and... And I was like, oh, my God, this is so weird. Because like, I had come from niche media, Muslim media, and gone into this mainstream space. And it was, like, scary and exciting at the same time. And it was, it was wonderful. And it was uh, very emotional as well. 
and I, and ever since then, ever since then, uh, the beginning of 2010, I've been writing for The Guardian. And I've gone on to write you know, many other pieces. Um, it's been, I've, I've written on my interface football. I've written about, you know, Christmas, like looking at enjoying Christmas as a Muslim. I've written about the burkini <laughs> ban. I've written about, oh God, what have I written about? I've written about Nadia Hussein winning Bake Off. And like that article got like over 72,000 shares off the Guardian website. And I was like, what? This is mad. Wow. <laughs> um, but I think it's because of Nadia Hussein, not because of me. But it was just, <laughs> it was just really, really exciting. It was just so exciting to see, you know, your work being shared all over the world. And yeah, so I've, I've, I've really enjoyed my time freelancing for the Guardian. I can imagine the joy that you get whenever your article is shared. It's similar to when we get like a download on our podcast. Yeah. And start celebrating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It is exciting, yeah. It is very exciting, yeah. One of the questions I had, Ramona, is, you know, when you're writing these stories, what's the process involved in writing a typical story? Like when you are speaking to the people that you're, you're researching topic on, like how do you get them to open up to you and share the information that you need? Uh, I always make sure that they trust me as well. You have to trust is really important in journalism. Um, and also I assure them that, you know, I wouldn't, I would never misquote them. And I, I, I have a, my own personal way of doing it is that I, I will say to them, look, I can run what I am quoting by you before I print it. And so they're generally very happy with that. Yeah. And I think it's just about building a rapport with the person that you're interviewing. So you don't go straight into a question. You actually, you know, build it up a bit. You talk to them about themselves, um, how important it is to you. Get this time with them. And it depends also on the context of it. So, you know, I've interviewed people after the Manchester Arena attack. I interviewed some people yeah. about how they responded to that. So obviously I wasn't jovial and jokey because that was a tragic event. And so I was just, it was, yeah. it, you know, required sensitivity. But also it's difficult because you're trying to work against time constraints because you've got to meet a deadline. So you have to like work around all of those things. But I always... You know, you have to show respect to to the person that you're interviewing, and you know they're taking their time out to speak to you, yeah. you know, to make your article work. So you know you have to make sure that they're comfortable and happy with what you're printing. Yeah, and and how do you find your, that story? Like as a journalist, how do you go looking for that particular story? Well, with with my work is often the Guardian has commissioned me as well as me pitching to them, so they might. Actually, uh, after that attack, I, I, I actually did a pause for thought on Radio 2 the morning after the attack. And off the back of that, The Guardian said, could you write something for us? It was literally on the same day as doing that. So I, mm. so that's how that happened. And I was like, yes, I do, because I was just, I was really, I was really upset by it. And I know everybody was. So I wanted to be able to, you know, put a voice to that, you know, and just process that through an article. And I'm really really fortunate that I can process so much of how I'm feeling through my work even if it's grief you know I've been able to process a lot of my grief through my my writing and my output on radio you know it, it's it's just in, you know I'm really really lucky and I'm really blessed I really do feel that that I have this opportunity because a lot of people don't don't have those opportunities and I just feel that I've been able to kind of navigate life with a lot more meaning and just it's just been slightly easier for me to, to to talk about these things when you talk about them in public it's just it's just really odd um yeah. but it helps and other people it resonates with other people and then it just helps you as well go through difficulties so yeah it was with with the uh, after the Manchester arena attack with the pulse for mm. thought I I mean I was I was in tears 
just before I went on to, to speak about it. And, uh, you know, apparently that so many people emailed. I didn't know this, but like afterwards, I found out hundreds of people had emailed and and like had shared it. Yeah, because it it's something that spoke to everyone's grief. So um, I was yeah. just, I was just, it was just happened to be that I was the person doing pause for thought the next morning. So I had to kind of wake up in the middle of the night and rewrite my pause for thought. I like fudge time like 4 a.m so i was really shattered as well <laughs> uh, but you know it's also you know great opportunity to to be able to to speak in that way it is and i see that a lot in your articles christmas uh, one is another example of that you know you always get this narrative in the media that you know muslims want to ban christmas and you know your article about you know i'm a muslim i don't want to ban christmas so and even yeah. this is like showing it from a muslim point of view i think it's hugely important and um yeah. you do a really good job at that so yeah oh thank you <laughs> thanks so much one of the um, articles you recently, uh, not recently, but you wrote an article about mosques making space for women. So oh, yeah. I'm re- I was really curious when I read that. How do you come about something like that? Because 28% seems like a huge figure because all the mos- all the mosques I go to, I think they could do a lot more to create space for women. But to see that 28% of mosques don't accommodate for women at all, that was hugely surprised. But as they know, mm. it got me thinking, how did you come up with for that story? And what did you have to mm. do for it? So the story for that actually came about through a conversation I was having with the Open My Mosque organization with someone called Anita Naya, and she has been doing campaigning and research around women in mosques in the UK. And we're just discussing how, you know, this number, this high percentage that mm. 28% of British mosques don't have access for women, you know, was, <laughs> was you know, terrible that this is happening in the UK. However, it's also uh, a product of backgrounds as well of the people who established those mosques. And, you know, maybe it wasn't in their, for their mind to uh, create spaces for women because a lot of them come from mm. the Indian subcontinent. And, you know, over there, it is not normal for women to go to the mosque. So when they immigrated over here, a lot of them set up these committees and there's all male committees. And obviously, Mm. they're not thinking about women coming into mosques. They're like, you know, they should pray at home. Um, But, you know, things are, you know, changing. They're changing a lot. And women are reclaiming their divine rights. They, you know, prayer is is equally a duty on men and women. And uh, the Prophet's first mosque had, you know, it wasn't even a space for women. Women were an an integral part of the community, an integral part of the mosque. So we're really like, we're not even, I wish we would go backwards, in fact, to that time, you know, and bring back that right, those rights for women to be in the mosque and be part of the mosque's activities as well. Because it feels like, you know, we only have like, half the community there really we haven't got the where's the other half so yeah so that's why i i wanted to write that piece but also i had written just a few years before then i'd written a piece about the muslim council of britain's initiative of visit my mosque and that was quite a light-hearted piece it was five reasons to visit your local mosque so I, I've written from two perspectives. So I wrote about that and the, the MCB initiative, and then I wrote about this Open My Mosque one, which was off the back of the MCB one. I feel like, you know, the, all these issues, I have, I have more than one opinion on them. Mm. And with, with journalism, it, it can be quite tricky because sometimes, you know, you're limited with word count, you're limited with deadlines, and you can't express everything that you feel about this topic when, you know, the, it, it's a huge topic. I mean, I know there are many reasons why women cannot access the mosques as well. You know, it could be economic reasons, socioeconomic reasons in that area. But I have to choose an angle and choose a focus and just go with that story. 
And, and, and I'm happy to say that I've got both those articles there to reflect my feelings, my mixed feelings about British mosques. You know, I celebrate the fact that there are wonderful mosques out there that are accommodating Muslim women and also making them an integral part of it. But also at the same time, there we, we can do a lot better in our mosques. You know, I mean, I've been to mosques even where there is um, access for women and it's in like a dungeon or something or in this like damn basement. <laughs> and you're like going through like health and safety problems trying to just get to that basement. I mean, like elderly people can't get down there. The baby facilities are terrible, you know, and that pushes women away from the mosque when we should be giving them a sense of community, you know. And, and but that's why now we're creating these third spaces. So people are gathering in places that they, they feel is their community hub. And that's often not the mosque anymore which is a, a shame, but, you know, it's just uh, responding to the needs of, of that environment. Mm. That is interesting to hear. How do you deal with word count? I hate word count, especially when you're doing description <laughs> for a podcast. Yeah, word counts are uh, a real bummer. <laughs> so they are, it is difficult. So sometimes I can, I've been told, okay, can you write this piece in like 700 words? something I'm like oh my god okay um <laughs> so that is why like it has to you know also the flow of the article has to work so you can't put all the points in because it doesn't work with the flow as well of the article mm. so there's lots of factors in the piece and if you have a voice in there that means you'll have to take away a point that you might want to make because you want to make room for that voice you know sometimes I've been given a much bigger word count like I've written on modest fashion as well for like Stylist magazine uh, as well as The Guardian. And I've had a bigger word count there so I can put a lot more voices in there. So yeah, it varies. <laughs> it really varies. <laughs> but word count is always the <laughs> a bit of a challenge. I mean, it's just like headlines as well, isn't it? It, it doesn't reflect the entire article. Like that's where you have clickbait now. Yeah. Like, you just have a few words and then not, that's not actually what the article is about often. <laughs> it's just... Trying to get you falls, in. Falls for clickbaits quite a bit. <laughs> and he always sends them to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it's really important to read the article. So don't judge an article by the headline, so because it can often be misleading. Unless it's our podcast, which is very honest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's a section of the show where we have tips from the guests. So what advice would you give to anyone or who wants to become a journalist or I'll start in a career in media. Don't do it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, my route into journalism was quite unconventional, but there was something calling to me seriously when uh, I went into it. So there was something that was like, definitely I was drawn towards writing. You know, I think that one of the really important parts of my path towards it was networking. So I have done a lot of networking and I've got some really good friends and contacts through that. And that really did help me to you know, lead you onto things when you network. I mean, in fact, networking led me onto not just The Guardian, but also onto BBC Radio. So, you know, I went to a uh, an interfaith leadership course where I didn't actually want to go on this course. So I was like, oh, I don't want to do it. But someone kind of made me apply for it. And I was like, I'm not even a leader. I'm not an interfaith <laughs> leader. Um, but I went on it and it actually opened up incredible windows of opportunity. So I met the former head of religion and ethics at BBC Radio. And he said to me, let's get you on Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Wow. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and uh, I've never done that before. 
and I tried it out and now I'm on the Chris Evans breakfast show and um, O'Leary breakfast show and um, and now I'm also doing some Radio 4 programs for something understood so it's you know you just never know where something will lead you so you know networking is really important and also like trust is really important because it was because I trusted the person who made me go on that course <laughs> and, and that kind of led me towards towards that you've got some experience with PR campaigns as well hypothetically hypothetically what kind of light-hearted PR campaign would you do <laughs> for a podcast called One Foot in the Sink to raise some awareness <laughs> purely hypothetical you know I mean I don't know if you've already done it but it would just be really funny to just talk about these like hilarious moments of like finding yourself in with your foot in the sink and the boss walks in you know these kind of like funny muslim moments or you know kind of like bringing memes to life on radio on the podcast <laughs> would be great there are so many funny things that happen and, and that's why i try and convey as well through my work you know on, on the radio especially I, I talk about things that go wrong for me or like embarrassing moments or you know I'm really accident prone so I kind of like bring that into it and it's always something to do with uh, <laughs> with my face as well often so yeah bringing like um, humor and faith together works yeah. really well <laughs> so that would be cool have you had a one foot in the sink incident uh yeah loads of times <laughs> I've had it when I'm in public bathrooms and I'm trying to like do my my ablutions and people are just kind of walking <laughs> in and out and they're like what is she doing <laughs> you're like I got my foot in the sink I'm really sorry I'm not dead. I'm not dead. <laughs> and then you're like cleaning and mopping it all up because it's like otherwise it's like the rivers of Babylon and you need to like really like make sure that area is dry otherwise someone might come in and slip up on it. But yeah, it is really important, uh, really yeah. embarrassing. And the sink is really high up and it's tiny as well. And you're like trying to get your foot up into this sink. And it's like some kind of like you have to contort your body to like weird positions to do it. <laughs> so yeah, it has happened to me loads of times, unfortunately. Or praying. Actually, once I was praying in a dressing room, and um, this woman actually opened the opened the curtain, and she was like, "Are you all right?" Because she thought I was like fainting on the floor. And I had to like, oh god, I think I carried on, and my friend had to tell her that, oh no, no, she's okay, she's fine. So yeah, it's always a bit of a worry when you pray in a in a dressing room. Yeah. Oh, I don't know whether we should broadcast that because I know our secrets out of the bag, isn't it? <laughs> it would be even more awkward if your friend wasn't there and she was having a one-way conversation with you and then you'd but be like oh no what do to, I do do I talk to, cut to her it. you have to you have to like break it because like they're like hello are you all right are you all right like, oh god yes I'm fine just go away um yeah so that's quite embarrassing so another tip I would say is just get out of your comfort zone so I've had to really push myself as I said before I don't like being on tv I don't really like speaking in public so much but I do public speaking now and I've been on telly and and it does surprise you when you put yourself out of your comfort zone what you can do so I think just try and embrace that and embrace the uncomfortable as well as the comfortable and then I think you'll really grow as well as a person yeah, that's good advice. That's the best, really good oh, advice. Another piece of advice. Oh, sorry. Got loads of advice now suddenly coming at me. <laughs> I would also say embrace, if you go into journalism, I would say embrace the downs as well as the ups because both of them are going to happen and just be ready to face the criticism because there's going to be trolling. I mean, when I wrote my Guardian articles, the comments below the line are notorious and I used to get thousands of really nasty comments attacking me attacking my faith 
And at the beginning, I used to read some of these comments, but then I, I kind of stopped it because I just feel like it takes away all my time. So just embrace it all because actually when people are trolling you, you know that you've arrived. You know that you're actually making a difference because people are worried about the messaging you're putting out there because it's positive messaging around Islam and a lot of people don't like that. Also, when you have all these kind of like negative feedback, it's really important that you have like really good, solid people around you because, you know, it's important to have moral support. I've got a battalion of friends who like literally carry <laughs> me through the wars um, and they celebrate the victories with me as well. So it's important to, to be surrounded with, with good people. There you go. Some great advice. Let's move to our quick fire round. No, oh, we haven't even talked about going, oh, God, I've got loads of stuff like being on the telly. I was on Newsnight. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, we can. Like, there's just so much to cover. All over the place. It's literally all over the place. And like funny stories. Like when I was at ML Magazine, I interviewed Outlandish, the hip-hop yeah. band, which recently disbanded. They're Muslim and Christian hip-hop band. Uh, Issam Bashiri is one of the singers. And we did this like two and a half hour interview and I had this little recording device and we realised afterwards that the whole interview got chewed up oh, no. and I didn't really take any notes. And it was like, oh my <laughs> God, what do we do? And I was interviewing them with my sister, actually, because she was also working at ML Magazine at the time. And we just sat there and go, okay, what did they say after this question? And we just literally had to write everything from memory. But apparently it turned out to be the best uh, interview they ever had. Wow. <laughs> That's what they said back then. <laughs> So, you know, Ramona, what's, what's even more funny than that? Imagine trying to do a podcast and you're interviewing someone and you forget to hit the record button. So you have Oh, yes. And he's speaking yes, from experience. Happened. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's happened. Have you done? Are you saying that right now? Has oh, that wait, happened right checks. now? No, we're good. <laughs> Everyone's paranoid. This happened, this happened in the past. <laughs> Any other funny moments on TV or memorable moments for you? Well, one of the most challenging moments was going on BBC Newsnight. So... I was called up. This is soon after the Charlie Hebdo attack happened. Mm. And the producer from Newsnight called me and she was like, are you free tonight? Can you come on Newsnight? And I was like, absolutely no way in hell. <laughs> I was like, no. Every atom of my being said no, because uh, I was just so petrified mm. of thinking about it. And then she said, oh, look, please, you know, it's not going to be like confrontational. We're not going to pit you against each other. There will be other Muslim women will be speaking there alongside you and then I had to think about it I was like you know what the need really is has to outweigh the fear here so I was like okay I have to do it you know I, I should do it because you know who else you know they might get some loon on so I uh, I said yeah okay I'll do it and then literally a few hours later I was in the Newsnight studios you know talking to Kirsty Walk about the British Muslim response to the mm. to this uh, horrible attack and i managed to get through it somehow and people were just giving amazing feedback afterwards i always think oh you know you're just being nice to me but it was just it was a it was a big turning point for me because i'd never wow. done anything that big it kind of really boosted my uh, confidence actually and then i actually did a lot more stuff on tv after that i did like sunday morning live on bbc one i did itv is Sky News and I never ever thought I would ever do anything like that you know when I was starting out as a journalist I was like I'm just gonna tap away at my laptop and no one ever <laughs> needs to see me but you know then you know you just don't mm. know what it's gonna lead you towards it's not just that high profile stuff it's also like the grassroots stuff I've been talking to so many like different community groups and faith groups and 
you know, and it's great to have that like one-on-one connections as well yeah. as, as doing the stuff on TV. I think that's really essential. Yeah. So yeah, I've been, uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. <laughs> you know, your story about TV, I always wondered, like whenever I watched the program of like BBC Question Time, we have a panel of people up on the stage answering questions or discussing events of the day. I always wondered, like, what if you have nothing to say? Like you'd be under so much pressure because there's four of you and three of you is talking and you're just there sitting there quietly and then I know I'll be yeah. like, oh, I better say something, I better say something. And then I know if I say something, I'll probably say something I really regret and then I'll be kicking myself. I It has happened to me once. It's like, you know, when you're going into Ingazam and you kind of have a bit of a blank. I had a slight blank mm. on, uh, I think it was BBC Worldwide. <laughs> and uh, and I, I just, he asked me the question and I kind of thought, oh my God. I had this kind of like glazed look and then I just I don't know I don't actually know what I said I said something I did not put that one out there I don't know where it is hopefully it's lost in some kind of cyber hole but um yeah we'll find it you do not find it, do not find it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was sometimes you, you it can be really like you got the lights on you got the cameras and uh you know sometimes you kind of like forget but I do generally really prep before I go on these things I have my messaging written down before I go on so that, you know, hopefully you kind of go into autopilot and you go back to what, what you had prepared because uh, it can be. And also when they ask you a question, just, you know, it doesn't matter what they ask, just say what you want to say. <laughs> so just like say what you want to message out there because, you know, or turn it on its head. It's just important mm. that you sound like you get your messages across. That's the main across, thing. Across, yeah. Cool. I think let's move to our quick fire round. Okay. So, our first question what's your favorite article oh my god <laughs> i'm terrible at quick fire what is my favorite article it doesn't have to be yours it could be somebody else's no no as well. not mine obviously um i can't specify but i really like mendy hassan's articles because they're just so yeah. to the point they are cutting they are truthful and they're really passionate he does do good yeah, articles, he, he's, he's done right. some brilliant yeah. articles the next question ramona is what's your most memorable experience with a celebrity? I really enjoyed meeting Stormzy Ooh. at Radio 2 Buildings. Uh, I remember this because he was holding some porridge because it was like breakfast time. And I was just like, I'm so geeky. I was like, can I get a photo with you? I just, I just, I can't play it cool at all. And then he was like, yeah, sure. And he kind of like put his porridge around my shoulder. And then we, uh, <laughs> yeah. we had a photo. <laughs> And I was just like, I looked like I was beaming, absolutely beaming. So that was that was fun meeting him. Um, but there's another another time I really enjoyed meeting Reggae Omar. Reggae Omar was just the loveliest person to interview. <laughs> I went to his house. He made me a cup of green tea, and uh, yeah, he was just lovely. And I just really enjoyed that interview. Such a gentleman. Oh, nice. Okay, next question. Your favorite book? Oh no, <laughs> just one. You can have you can list multiple if you have multiple. Okay, can I have like twenty? Um, <laughs> so my favorite book or books. Um, okay, so I really love Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. I've read it three times. I have loved The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad and <laughs> Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Is that all right? I'm given three. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> awesome. Okay, and then the final from our quickfire round is your proudest, apart from coming on this podcast, obviously, your proudest moment in media. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh that much. 
(laughs) 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 My proudest moment. In media, yeah. Hmm. I think it has to be the first article that I got published in The Guardian because that meant huge amount to me, like being mm-hmm. in the mainstream space and having the kind of responses from everybody that I did. It was just, it was, oh, I was like on seventh heaven, like ages. And uh, and also it was, you know, a few months after my father had passed away. So I was very emotional. And like, I remember my, mm. my brother writing a comment on Facebook just saying, oh, dad would be so proud. And I just kind of like oh. burst into tears, kind yeah. of it's like bittersweet tears. Yeah. So yeah, that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah, that's a good answer. Okay, so before we wrap up, um, what's next for you and where can people find out more about you? Oh, what's next for me? I'm always a bit unpredictable, so I don't know where I'm going to go next. I've got a backlog of stuff that I need to do that is quite exciting, but I haven't done it yet. So I need to work on some things that are a little bit top secret. Um, <laughs> so hopefully that'll be next. I have I edited a, a book by a big fashion YouTuber called Dina Talkia. That's going to come out oh, cool. in September. And hopefully I'm trying to maybe think about doing something like a TV program or maybe even write a book <laughs> if I can get my act together. <laughs> so that might be in the future. Who knows how far in the future? But yeah, that's something that I would like to do next. Well, sounds exciting. The TV program sounds good. I like that. Yeah, I've been pitching. I've been pitching some some things, uh, but let's see. Let's see. Sometimes it's hard to break it, break into it. Yeah, inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. inshallah. Um, where do you hang out online? I hang out online <laughs> on Twitter. I love like that's what almost like my home on Twitter. Instagram is like my happier home. Twitter's sometimes my angry home, and uh, that's it really. And also, I've got my website where I upload all my work to as well. And I'll include the links to those on the show notes as well. Oh, cool. Lovely. Okay, Ramona, well, before we let you go, we have one final question for you. Okay. If you could broadcast a message across the world, what would it be? It would be not my message. It would be a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad. It would be that all of humanity is the family of God. And uh, God loves the ones who are most beneficial to his children. Nice. It's a good answer. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Romano. We've had a great time. It's been fun. And, you know, keep up the work you're doing. It's very inspirational. It's great to see. And, you know, inshallah, you know, you get your TV show and things continue the way they are. Thank you for coming on the show. and It's been great having you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic. And funny too. (laughs) Bye. Not over just yet, everyone. Of course we've got to plug ourselves. We hope you enjoyed this episode and took away some gold nuggets of wisdom. Remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you wanted to give us any feedback, praise, or if you have any suggestions for guests, send us an email to info at onefootinthesync.com. You can also find us on Facebook, just search One Foot in the Sink, or Instagram at One Foot in the Sink, or Twitter at the number one foot in the sink. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and look out for new episodes every other Monday, or fortnightly, or bi-weekly, whatever you want to call it, let's go with two weekly. That's me all done, see you guys soon!